the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. If you follow us on Facebook or Twitter, you may have seen us post that we were looking for the author of the latest book on D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper Examined, Identified, and Exposed was released just a month ago, and when I saw it, I knew I had to read it, but more importantly, I wanted to get the author on the show. Lucky for you, we found him. Ladies and gentlemen, my new friend, Nat LaFoke. How did you get started with D.B. Cooper? I was not that into the whole D.B. Cooper phenomenon. I had just what I would say is an average level of interest in the whole thing. And the first time I would say I was exposed to it, I was a kid in middle school, and I bought this book called Great Unsolved American Mysteries. And it was a, it was a children's book that included, I think, maybe 10, 10 mysteries. One of them was the D.B. Cooper heist. And in that book was a photo of the FBI composite sketch that was what we would call one of the Bing Crosby sketches. And that image really struck me for some reason and kind of haunted me, but I was not somebody who was doing any research into the D.B. Cooper case. I had never gone to any of the forums. And it wasn't until I watched the History Channel special, I think, that I got a little more interested in it, which was 2016, July, I think. All right. And then, so you watched that special in July of 2016? Mm-hmm. And what were your thoughts on that? Did you think then that Rackstraw was Cooper? No, I was I was convinced that he was not Cooper for multiple reasons. One big one was, even by then, I knew enough about the case. I guess I'd probably gone to the Wikipedia page. To know that Robert Rackstraw was just way too young to have been D.B. Cooper. And it seemed unlikely to me that the FBI would have investigated him and then cleared him. So I knew that. And then the special ends with Tina Mucklow pretty definitively saying, no, it's not him. I mean, she didn't even hesitate. And all of that was enough to convince me. I also thought a lot of the some of the clues that Tom Colbert had come up with did not add up as in the Ingram family being in cahoots with D.B. Cooper and pretending to find the money. I did not believe that for a second. So I thought the whole story was, was pretty shaky. I did read the book um, to see if maybe I could have a better understanding of the last uh, American outlaw and just found it unconvincing. So then did you side, decide to start your own investigation at that point? No, what happened was, and I guess at this point we're just going to go ahead and, and out my suspect, I'm a history enthusiast, 
And I happened to be reading a new biography on Richard Nixon by Evan Thomas about two months after the history special ran. And I realized as I'm going through that, I knew a whole lot about the whole Watergate saga because I had lived through that and I'd always had an interest in that. And I realized that I had a good handle on all the key players in the Watergate saga. I knew who they were. I knew what they looked like. G. Gordon Liddy, John Mitchell, John Dean, Charles Colson, John Ehrlichman, all these people had played some part in this. But there was one figure I knew almost nothing about, and all the times that I'd read about Watergate or Nixon, this guy always seemed kind of like a phantom. And I put his name into Google so I could at least know what he looked like and did a Google search. A bunch of images came up for him. And one or two of those was this guy looking directly into the camera. And when I saw that, I had an instant recognition that I'd seen that face somewhere before. It took about two seconds, and I realized it was that same Bing Crosby sketch. And I had kind of an epiphany at that moment because I knew enough about this character to know that he was a CIA career man up until right before um, becoming an aide to Nixon. And I also knew that the same individual had a fertile imagination because he had written about 40 spy novels. And he had this James Bond complex. And I thought, what better candidate to be D.B. Cooper than somebody who wanted to be James Bond? Because it seemed like a James Bond move, the whole D.B. Cooper heist. One of the things I liked about the History Channel special that I had not considered before is they made a big deal about D.B. Cooper knowing about the aft staircase being able to be lowered mid-flight because of the Air America campaign. And the Air America campaign was a CIA-backed operation during the Vietnam War. And knowing that my candidate had been in the CIA during that period and had, in fact, been working for the assistant, for the director as an assistant, led me to believe that he probably had knowledge of that Air America campaign and knew enough about the 727 to know that not only could you open the staircase mid-flight, but you could safely airdrop cargo out of it without it getting sucked into the engine. And that's something I don't think too many of the D.B. Cooper suspects would have known. And so at that point... I started trying to do research into both the D.B. Cooper case and into this guy because I was sure it was not him, my suspect, but I just wanted to basically disprove it to my own satisfaction and then move on. But unfortunately, I kept seeing weird coincidences that would pop up, and I began wondering about the whole sketch artist and why there were so many different sketches and why D.B. Cooper was looked different in these different sketches and why they were made. And I realized the only way that I could prove or disprove to my satisfaction that this guy was D.B. Cooper was if I could prove that the Bing Crosby sketches were probably accurate and the other ones were not. And so that took a long time before I could sort all that out. Before we continue and out your mm -hmm. suspect i'd like to ask you when you started looking into them 
him, were you wondering why has he not come up as a suspect before? Yeah, and that, that, you're exactly right. And that was the, the biggest thing that I think pointed against him being a suspect. This guy was a public figure, and he should have been on somebody's radar. And it, to my eyes, he looked a lot like the Bing Crosby sketch, but I couldn't find anything out there in the Cooper universe of anybody else making that, that same comparison. And when I would tell my friends about this theory, that was the first thing they would say is, well, if this guy is really Cooper, how come nobody else has come up with it yet? It's a, it's a, it's a fair point. And my answer to that is we've, we've kind of looked at the narrative that Cooper was an everyman, a regular guy with no criminal history, who just happened to come up with this audacious scheme and carry it out and never get caught, never tell anybody about it. And we just got nowhere. We've never found the right guy or not conclusively. And so maybe now it's time to take a look at the, the crazier theories and, and go down that road. I, I think that if this guy was D.B. Cooper, he was hiding in plain sight. And one of the things that worked in his favor is that he became a public figure about a year after the D.B. Cooper heist. And it just never occurred to anybody that he might also be D.B. Cooper. And it just seemed, I think, too out there as a theory for anybody to ever explore. Well, let's continue with your investigation into the police sketches, the mm-hmm. FBI sketches. That became really difficult to, to tor- sort of track down because nobody seemed interested in this one element. The first thing I did was I went to the Citizen Sleuth website, and they have all the sketches laid out, and they give the year, and I think they give the approximate time period for all of them, except for the B sketches. And the B sketches are the ones that, in my opinion, don't look anything like my candidate, my suspect. All they say on the Citizen Sleuth site is they came out between 1972 and 1973, which does not narrow it down very much. So I emailed Tom Kay to see if he could help me out. And um, Tom Kay is a really nice guy. He was encouraging, but he didn't know. He didn't know the answer. He didn't know exactly when those sketches were made or why they were made. At that point, I decided the only thing that I could maybe do is try to get in touch with the sketch artist. And his name is Roy Rose. And I was surprised by how little there is out there on Roy Rose. I don't know if he's ever been interviewed by anybody in the Cooper universe But what I ended up finding was a 10-minute interview on YouTube that one of his relatives, maybe his grandson, had put up there. And almost nobody had seen this video. It had almost no hits. So I thought if I reach out to this relative, maybe he'll, he'll take pity on me and pass on a message to Roy Rose. So I did that, and the questions I asked were, when were these B sketches made? Why were they made? Who were the witnesses who changed the description? And did he think that it was at all unusual that the another round of sketches was being requested after the first round? And I need to backtrack a little bit and give maybe just a little history on the original sketches. The Bing Crosby sketches were made right after the heist. What happened was the day after the D.B. Cooper heist, the three stewardesses met at the headquarters of Northwest Orient with Roy Rose. And the three of them 
came up with the first Bing Crosby sketch, which is the one that has uh, him wearing sunglasses. Now, I, I take it from Roy Rose's testimony on that YouTube video that there was some back and forth that he was showing it to the girls and asking them if that's what he looked like. But we also knew that they were using an FBI identikit, and they were pulling out um, facial characteristics like facial shape and hairline and all that and ear shape. And so he does a sketch of T.B. Cooper wearing sunglasses, but the FBI doesn't like that, and they want to get a sketch of D.B. Cooper showing his eyes. But the problem was the stewardesses had not seen his eyes except Florence Schaffner briefly, and she couldn't remember what they looked like. So at that point, they turned the FBI turns to the passenger witnesses and asked them if any of them could remember what D.B. Cooper's eyes looked like. And at least two of them do. And the FBI gets a description from the two passengers one of them says that D.B. Cooper had a, quote, bored, let's get it over with look. And so Rose tried to incorporate that in there. They also said he had um, what they termed as, I think, eyes that looked like they might have belonged to a Latino. And I have no idea what that means. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting interesting way to note that. Yeah, I can I can't describe that or picture it either. It really is. So Roy's, uh, Roy Rose then does a second sketch, and within a week, both these sketches are released to the public. And after that, the FBI gets a whole bunch of leads. And so I was wondering why, after that, did the FBI go back a second time to Roy Rose? So Roy Rose gets back to me about a month later, tells me that he, th he recalls that the B sketches that look nothing like the first set were done a few weeks after the first set. And the reason that they were made was that the FBI wanted to show D.B. Cooper in color. And the Bing Crosby sketches, the earlier ones, were black and white. That seemed odd to me, too, because I thought, why can't you just colorize the original sketches? They also, according to Rose, um, he wasn't sure which witnesses wanted it changed around, but his assumption was that it was the stewardesses. And he was partly right about that. So up until I finished writing the book, I could not find out anything more about when these sketches came out, when the B sketches came out. And finally, in April of this year, I learned that the FBI had released all of their reports from the beginning of the Cooper case up until about 1980. And that was that was not the case when I first started researching this. So I realized I had about 10,000 pages of files to look through to try to find an answer to this. And I did, fortunately, um, find out when these sketches were made and why they were made. But it was hard because these reports are not in chronological order. And the memos related to the sketches are all out of order. So I had to copy everything. They are dated and then put them in order and and try to construct it that way. So what happened was, uh, I think in April 1972, J. Edgar Hoover died. He was the head of the FBI. And his replacement was a guy named F. Patrick Gray. And understandably, one of the first things Gray wanted to do was find out why this D.B. Cooper case was still on the books and hadn't been solved. 
So, so he had uh, a couple agents pour through all the files, look at what had been done, how it had been done, and try to figure out what recommendations going forward they should do to try to solve the case. They came up with about seven recommendations of things that should be looked at. And one of them was they noticed that after the Bing Crosby sketches were made, um, one of the witnesses, Florence Schaffner, did not think it was a good likeness. The other witnesses seemed to think it was a good likeness. And really the only criticism was that they thought the face looked a little bit too narrow, that Cooper had a wider face than the Bing Crosby sketch. That's why these sketches were made. But they didn't go down that road again until August of 1972. So now we're nine months after the D.B. Cooper heist. And they go back and re-interview some of the witnesses and look at what they had said about uh, originally when they used the Identikit. And mainly when they do this, this new round of sketches, they're looking at what Florence Schaffner had said and trying to work in her description and change around what they originally had. So they then show the new sketches, the first B sketches, to the three stewardesses. Florence Schaffner says, yeah, that's closer. Alice Hancock seems to like it. And Tina Mucklow says, no, that doesn't look like him at all. You're going in the wrong direction. So they make a couple more changes. And then towards the end of 1972, they show the the new revised B sketch to the stewardesses. And again, um, Tina Mucklow says, no, this is even worse. Alice Hancock likes it. They show it to the passenger witnesses. And I guess the, the ones who would look at his eyes said, that doesn't look like him. Now he's got kind of a sinister look because they had really changed the eyes around. But even so, they finally show it to Florence Schaffner, the B sketch, and she approves it. And so in early 1973, they begin releasing the new B-Sketch. And that's how all that came about. I appreciate all the history on the sketches. Uh, it was nice to read that in your book. What do, you, what do you think that did to the case to in the first year and a half to release two sketches that looked completely different? Yeah, exactly. I think it, it caused a lot of confusion. And if you believe in conspiracies and think that somebody at the FBI did not want Cooper caught and thought he looked a little bit too much like my suspect, then you do have to wonder if, if they were trying to muddy the waters by releasing that, that second sketch. While this was going play, taking place in August, that was around the same year that my suspect was basically coming out as a public figure was being photographed, and it just happened to coincide with him bursting onto the scene. And you can kind of wonder if the FBI did not want this guy to be discovered, they wouldn't have been too happy that there was an FBI sketch that looked an awful lot like him. Definitely. Nat, who is your suspect? My suspect is famed White House plumber and Watergate architect E. Howard Hunt. Of whom Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible is reportedly named after. <laughs> well, that's what the Hunt family thinks. And maybe it could be. He was a well-known, he was a well-known figure. Um, 
And in fact, if you're into this type of thing in, in the X-Files, some people think that the cigarette smoking man was also modeled after E. Albert Hunt. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. There's an episode of the X-Files where um, it centers around this figure, the cigarette smoking man, and he's a, a writer trying to get his one of his novels published, I think, or maybe a short story published, and, and that, that was clearly inspired by E. Howard Hunt. So once you were able to sort of realize the first sketch was more accurate, and it, it definitely mm-hmm. matches uh, E. Howard Hunt, where do you go from there? As much as I could, I tried to investigate E. Howard Hunt. And in his case, I had the privilege of having a guy who wrote three memoirs and a whole bunch of fiction. And other people had investigated him for various reasons. His son had written a couple books about him. So I read everything I could. There was one biography written by him by a guy named Tad Sulk of the New York Times. That came out during the whole Watergate saga. And then I read everything that I could on the internet that I could find on him. Yeah, and reading your book, it sounds like you did a lot of research for this. When did you decide you were going to write this book? Uh, that would have been in March of 2018. And I just happened to have some time on my hands. I wasn't sure I had enough to fill a book. And after I wrote the first draft, it was still pretty light. So I had to come up with a couple more chapters. And it took, I don't know, nine months for the first draft. And then I kept writing it. Would have had it released probably in April. That was the original plan. And then um, that's when I found out the FBI files had been released and had to go through all those. And that took me at least a month to go through looking at... (laughs) A thousand pages a day or so. Yeah, going through the FBI files is super tedious and super boring, and most of Mm -hmm. what you're reading is completely irrelevant. You're right. I also, um, the other good thing was, by now, E. Howard Hunt's personnel file from the CIA is in the public domain, so I was able to read through all of that. That was helpful. I filed two FOIA requests with the CIA trying to get information on both the D.B. Cooper Rice and E. Howard Hunt. And that helped a little bit. Um, but uh, overall, I had to mainly just keep reading his memoirs over and over and, and try to make connections. What information does the CIA have on the D.B. Cooper heist? None that they would give me. They gave me a response back that they can neither confirm nor deny that they had any information. (laughs) This just kind of adds fuel to the fire, right? A little bit, yeah. And your book, D.B. Cooper Examined, Identified, and Exposed, I loved it. I thought it was a great book. And probably one of my favorite things about it was that it is brand new. So Mm -hmm. you were talking about the FBI files. Um, Right. The last book I read on Cooper was Ralph Himmelsbach's, which is, mm-hmm. you know, pre-internet and everything, so it yep. it just feels so dated. Yeah, I have to say I have not read his book, but I, I, I have a feeling that it was written so long ago that probably a lot of things have been cleared up since then. Oh, yeah, a lot's changed since Himmelsbach's book. Uh, one chapter in your book I'd like to talk about, Genius mm-hmm. or Imbecile. Right. I... I like that, and that's something that seems to get discussed over and over, both about Cooper and, like you discuss in your book, E. Howard Hunt. And there are are different suspects 
with both of those theories kind of in the the db cooper folklore what's your take on it is is db cooper howard hunt was that genius or was it just kind of luck oh i think it was a lot closer to genius the thing about the db cooper heist that separates him from the many copycats is it was executed so well and that was one of the things i tried to establish is that if you look at all the other copycats um those guys were under a lot of pressure you could see them making big blunders and they they just didn't have that that command that cooper had he seemed to be in control the whole time and i think it was more genius so the question is if he was a genius why did he jump out wearing that business suit and tie and the the, the loafers and instead of jump boots and that is one of the big questions, I guess, in the D.B. Cooper case. Do you think it's possible that he had a, another bag already on the plane? Yeah. Well, I mean, he brought with him at least one other bag. We know that. One witness said he brought two bags. And by that, I mean, they they were small. They may have been composed of burlap. We're not sure. They might have been paper sacks. But he did bring something else on there. That is the biggest mystery for me. Uh, the other mystery that I'm frustrated by in this whole thing that nobody seems to care about is D.B. Cooper requested maps of something. And all the FBI files say is that he requested some maps, so along with the money, they brought in these maps. And I would like to know what those were because that might be able to tell us, it might be able to give us some clue as to who he was or where he jumped or something in that area. Yeah, and that's something that I'd heard once or twice before, but it was one of those details that I even questioned was was true. Because in it's this true. case, there's a lot of, you know, this happened, or I'll read a suspect account and they've peppered in some uh, mm-hmm. details that might not be true, and then it just sort of gets repeated. Right. Even though it's made up. No, that one is clearly in the FBI files. That's in there, right? After the D.B. Cooper heist happened, I mean, that hours after it happened, the FBI was interviewing the witnesses. And they interviewed the flight crew, I guess, as soon as they landed in, in Reno. And they backed that up. Um, I think both the pilots and one of the stewardesses um, brought up the map thing, but they didn't say what of. And I am wondering if maybe the FBI... Um, didn't think to ask it because I don't know why they wouldn't have put that in there. They weren't, the FBI, FBI wasn't thinking at this point that other people outside the FBI are going to be reading this report. So you think they would have been as specific as they could have been. What do you think the map was? I don't know. If it was local terrain, maybe that indicated he was going to be jumping out in an area he didn't know too well. Yeah. Or if he's, Hey, can I get a map of aerial Washington? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's so curious. What was that map? Was it a flight map? Was it a ground map? Terrain? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's hard to say. Could have been a map of Mexico City, maybe. But I have a feeling it was a, a map of the local terrain. But how large a map of local terrain? I don't know. Good question. Gosh, that that seems like a very important detail to just say he wanted a map. Yep. Why would he even ask for that? That seems like a mistake. 
It does, because it seems like either it, it, he was trying to throw them off by asking for maybe, suppose he was asking for a map of the Seattle area, and he had no intention of jumping there. I guess they, once he asks for parachutes, they know he's going to be jumping out somewhere. So maybe the map was somewhere he was not going to be jumping out. Maybe it was a map of Reno. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if he wanted maps, he could have put them in his attache case or sure. in that, that canvas bag in his suit pocket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maps, that's a weird, weird request. Speaking of the attache case, do you think the bomb was real? No. Um, I don't know why it would have had to be. There's some theories that the dynamite sticks were road flares, maybe. I don't think he would have needed real dynamite to fool the flight crew. And if he's assuming he might get busted for this, it would make more sense to have a fake bomb instead of real dynamite. Yeah, and I mean, once you say that you have a bomb, they're not exactly going to say prove it. Right. Did Howard Hunt have any experience with bomb making or anything like that? That's a good question. That is one of the things I tried to find out in the CIA files. So when they sent me the CIA files, they were supposed to send me everything that had anything to do with E. Howard Hunt from the time he left the CIA up until Watergate. I didn't want to know beforehand, but they sent me basically every uh, entries article memo entries of everything that included E. Howard Hunt going back to when he first joined, I think. So it was a lot to go through. It was like 400 pages of memo articles to look through. And I found a couple of tantalizing things that indicated he may have had some training in explosives, but I, I did not get my hands on those articles. He was also in the OSS, and depending on what his training was in there, he may have had a little bit of training in, in, in bomb making at that point. But we know he did have parachute experience. Sure. That's right. So there's no question about that. And during World War II, he signed up for the OSS, which stands for the Office of Strategic Services. And this was an intelligence gathering operation modeled after the British intelligence agency that was going on during World War II. And it was the product of this guy named General Bill Donovan, who came up with the idea of airdropping agents behind enemy lines. That's what they were known for. So they would train these guys to parachute under you know, conditions like cover of darkness. And I wonder if when they were training these people, they were training them to jump wearing business suits because they would want to blend in as soon as they landed. Um, and so I could not get a manual from the OSS. There were a few things that were declassified out there, but nothing that dealt with the parachute training. But in Hunt's memoir called Undercover, he does specifically mention that he had parachute training and, and made his three qualifying jumps. Boy, that would be interesting to know if they were practicing in business suits. Right. <laughs> that would be wild. D.B. Cooper chose a military Navy chute, and it seems to me that that would have been the type of shoot that Hunt would have been trained on. He was in the Navy. He also was in the Army Air Corps. And I'm assuming when he was being trained in the OSS, he was probably being trained with, with military shoots. So I always thought that it was not somebody, that whoever D.B. Cooper is, it's not somebody who was a 
recreational parachutist, a skydiver. I think it had to be somebody who had parachute training, but from the military. Do you think D.B. Cooper chose the correct parachute? I don't know. I guess if he survived, he apparently did. But based on what I read, he chose the wrong parachute because taking the Navy parachute would have given him a much uh, less comfortable jerk when he pulled the ripcord. He would have had it apparently was a lot harder on the body, that Navy parachute, the harness. Also, the ripcord is a little bit harder to find. It's, it's not in a real obvious place. So my understanding is an experienced parachutist would have taken the other one because it would have given him a, a smoother jump and he could have maneuvered it better. Unless, of course, all of his experience parachuting was in the military. Right. Then he wouldn't have used a sport chute. That's what I think. And I think he wasn't that knowledgeable about parachuting because not only did he choose the dummy chute for the reserve chute, but... What I read is that the dummy chute did not attach properly to the main chute, and that's something an experienced parachutist would have would have noticed. Yeah, definitely. I w- I always questioned that too, choosing the dummy, and you know I've heard reports that it wouldn't even attach to the the other chute that he chose. Mm-hmm. Everything's baffling about this. As you know, one of the con- um, frustrating things is that we get a lot of our parachute information from a guy named Earl Kazi. He's the one who took the parachutes to the FBI. And what's frustrating is he kept changing his story again and again and again. And so there's a lot of unknowns about the parachute. Yeah, and it doesn't help that he was mysteriously murdered. No, that that that's more food for thought. <laughs> okay, so Howard Hunt jumps out of the plane with the the military chute. What happens next? Well, that's the thing that I never really tried to answer other than the fact that I believe that it was important that he chose a holiday weekend or the beginning of a holiday weekend to jump out, giving him enough time to get back. And that he did that is one of the things that really made me think E. Howard Hunt was D.B. Cooper because during the same time period, E. Howard Hunt had a history performing criminal actions on long holiday weekends. So on the Labor Day weekend, right before the D.B. Cooper heist, that was the weekend that he and two Cubans uh, flew to Los Angeles and broke into the psychiatrist's office of Daniel Ellsberg looking for some dirt. And then the Memorial Day weekend after the D.B. Cooper heist, which would have been the following uh, late May, I guess, of 1972, that was the weekend that the Watergate burglars first tried to break into Watergate and, and bug the, the telephones of the Democratic National Committee. So he liked these long holiday weekends. The other thing is, I did not put this in the book, but in his memoir, uh, Undercover, E. Howard Hunt, tells a story about a time that he was working as the station chief in Mexico City. And he got the order to break into the embassy of one of the communist countries that was in Mexico City. So to do that, he flew in some safe crackers from the United States on a weekend, on a Friday. They broke into the safe of the embassy and then flew out on a Sunday. 
And Hunt says in there that was standard CIA procedure to do that on a weekend. So it seemed to be something that had been established. And if Hunt needed an extraction team to help him with his heist, he probably could have used some of these same Cubans who had helped him in both the break-in at Dr. Fielding's office in Los Angeles and Watergate later on. How would you go about an extraction? I don't know. One of the things that the FBI looked into was, and this is in these FBI files, they spent a lot of time exploring the possibility that D.B. Cooper had an electronic homing device that he could have bought at an electronics store. And I suppose he would have had, this would have been like a beacon so that when he landed, he could have set it off and his extraction team would have found him. And my theory is that if that was the case, that might have been what he was bringing along in that burlap bag, or maybe he had it hidden in the attache case. What sort of homing device was there in 1971? There was something, because they they were exploring that. Um, There are memos of them um, contacting electronic stores. And E. Howard Hunt certainly would have had experience probably with surveillance equipment. But it's one of those things that I I didn't try to explore because I didn't have any way of of trying to find out what he would have done since that is just so unknown. But in the E. Howard Hunt story, he seems to disappear around the month of November and not pop up again until like mid-December. So we have no idea what he was doing at that period. That's pretty interesting. It could have been that he was you know, just working at the office and nothing was going on. But it is it is interesting that in his memoir, he has nothing to add during that period. Do you think the drop zone is accurate? Yes. And the reason I think it's accurate is the interview that you had with Tom Kay, mm-hmm. I think was very informative on that topic. And he made it real clear that the FBI knew the exact flight path um, without question, that was taking place, and that they established when Cooper jumped, uh, both from the pilot testimony of him saying, oh, I think maybe Cooper just jumped because they saw the change in air pressure and because they um, contacted ham radio operators who were listening in at the time. So I think we have the exact target where he jumped. I think that's pretty clear. Yeah, I, I tend to believe that too. But there just seems to be endless discussion right. on the flight path and on the jump time. Mm-hmm. And it, some of the theories are interesting, but it just it's another one of those things that adds confusion and just multiple layers to the story. Right. Yeah, I'm convinced that they got the right area, and I'm convinced that, that Cooper didn't die in the heist because they've had 40-some years to comb the area. They had bloodhounds. They probably had cadaver dogs. They had the military looking. I think something would have turned up by now. If they wanted to find something, right? Right. But, you know, you also had a lot of citizens loose prowling around trying to find his body. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, hunters would have covered it. Right. most of those woods also. Sure. What about the money at Tina Bar? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, here's all I can say on this. My 
one of the things about E. Howard Hunt was he had wilderness survival training. That's one of the things that you get in the OSS, and he talks about that in his memoir. I was in Boy Scouts, and one of the things that we learned was if you ever are lost in the woods, the first thing you try to do is find a moving body of water and follow it. And you follow it because it's likely to find civilization. So my thinking is Hunt was trying to get back to somewhere where he could let people know who were going to pick him up where he was. And at some point he found that river, was walking along it, and maybe the money got too heavy. It was it weighed about 20 pounds, I think. He may have been injured. We don't know. And I think he just buried it there and came back for it later and maybe missed a few bundles. But I feel like Tom K. pretty well established that it did not float down the river and get there that way. So did when you read Ralph Hemmelsbeck's book, mm-hmm. do you remember the theory that he gave for how the money got there? I don't believe he gave a theory in his book. Okay, well, I'll tell you what his theory was, which seems the most outlandish. He came up with a theory that an animal found those bundles where Cooper landed and carried them for 20 miles and then buried them at Tina Bar. That was that was the FBI theory for a while. Okay, that's a wild theory. It is wild. <laughs> <laughs> carried it for 20 miles. Okay, yeah. I don't believe I read that in his book, or maybe I'm just not paying attention. Well, I... I when I read that it was not in his book. This would have been shortly after the money was found, and he proposed that theory. So maybe he backtracked. I've not heard him. I did not hear him bring that up again later, like on his interviews with Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, there. I mean, no one has a good explanation for how the money got there. You're right, but what what it does seem clear is if it did not float there, then DB Cooper must have gotten away with the money. Do you think it? He spent the money. Was he able to spend it? Well, yes. Um, one of the things about E. Howard Hunt is he had experience laundering money. And during early 1972, one of his main jobs was laundering campaign donations for the Nixon campaign. And he was traveling to different areas like uh, Miami and I think Mexico doing that. So he knew how to do it. One of the things that you and I have not talked about yet is when he first joined the CIA, about a year after he joined, he became the first station chief in Mexico City. That means he was over the CIA office. And Mexico City at the time, among other things, was known as a big capital for laundering money. I'm sure Hunt knew how to launder money. And one of the problems for the FBI was that these bills were all $20 bills. That was a common bill. And it would have been a nightmare for people to try to examine every $20 bill that came their way and look over the 10,000 serial numbers to try to match it. So I think that he could have laundered it. All he had to do basically was wait a while and then start spending it. Most of the people looking for the the $20 bills were in Washington and in Oregon, because that's where the newspapers publish the serial numbers. I think the FBI also uh, published booklets, but you had to send off for them and pay a dollar, I think, to, to get the booklets with the serial numbers in them. I don't know how many people did that. But I think he could have waited a year, and by that point, 
people would have gotten tired of looking for the the numbers and just would have stopped. Oh yeah, could you imagine being a bank teller and you're gonna yeah every twenty dollar bill you get in, you're gonna compare it against a list of ten thousand non sequential serial numbers. Yeah, that would have been a nightmare. I wouldn't do that a second time. I would do it once. Uh, okay, that yeah, that took too much time. I'm not going to do it anymore. Right. It'd be impossible. Yeah, it would be tough. It'd be frustrating. Do you think Howard Hunt or E. Howard Hunt did this as an op, or do you think he did it as something freelance? Oh, good question. I am completely convinced that this was freelance. It was, it was, this was him. One of the things about Hunt is he was a complete maverick. And he was clearly bitter with the CIA at this point. So I probably need to talk a little bit about that. E. Howard Hunt was, a, was doing very well in the CIA at first. Um, he had a good record of successes. And at one point, he got tapped to help plan the Bay of Pigs invasion. And his role for that was he was supposed to help organize the government that would take place after they got rid of Castro. So the CIA handpicked this guy named Manuel Ortega to be the new president, and they put him, Manuel Ortega, and the other people that would be taking over for the new government in Mexico City. So once again, we have a tie back to Mexico City. But the Bay of Pigs invasion was a big fiasco, and all the people involved with that were hung out to dry by JFK. So at that point, E. Howard Hunt is relegated to desk jobs. And eventually, my understanding is he was told that maybe it would be a good time for him to retire. So after he's been in for 20 years, he go he goes ahead and takes his retirement. But he always felt bitter over the way he was treated in the CIA. And one of the things that I uncovered in doing this investigation is he had a problem with his annuity when he retired. A year after he retired, he wanted to change the arrangement he had for his annuity. When you retire from the federal government, I guess, you've got a choice of two annuity plans, a single annuity and a joint annuity. If you take the single annuity, you make more money, and he made $20,000 a year, which is pretty good for 1970. But a year after he retires, he wants to change that from a single to a joint annuity. And what that means is if he died, his wife would continue receiving an annuity um, until she died. And so the question is, why did he want to change that annuity? And he got, you could see in the memos that the letters he was writing back and forth to the CIA, this really bothered him that they would not make that change. A week after he comes back from breaking into Dr. Fielding's office in Los Angeles, he meets with somebody at the CIA to talk again about this annuity and tells whoever he's meeting with at the CIA that if they don't change his annuity, he's going to make trouble for them because he's now working for the White House. And again, they don't ever change this annuity plan. One of my questions is, why was he so concerned about changing his annuity? You change your annuity when um, you think something in your life has changed, like you have health issues and you're afraid you're going to die early. 
And so I do wonder if, if maybe at some point he got the impression that he was, his days were numbered and he was going to die soon. And if that was the case, doing this D.B. Cooper heist makes a little more sense. In the personnel files, at one point, he did get in trouble a couple of times for doing things that, that they the CIA considered inappropriate. And during, uh, in one of these memos, the person writing it mentions that he he refers to Hunt as a quote-unquote freewheeler, which is another word for like a maverick, a guy who does his own thing. When the Watergate break-in happened, the first thing Hunt decides is a good idea is to blame it on the CIA and throw them under the bus and make it look like it was a CIA operation. So he was not in the CIA at this point for sure, as as much as he was uh, trying to get that annuity changed. And right before the Watergate break-in happened, maybe a week or two before, um, he writes to the CIA again and says, look, why don't you reactivate my status? Make me a CIA agent again for just a short period, and then we can change the annuity. <laughs> and the ironic thing is, when the Watergate break-in happened and it turned out Hunt was guilty, the CIA ended his annuity altogether. But that's after the hijacking. Oh, yeah. That was after. So Watergate happened the summer after the hijacking. Did you by any chance listen to my last episode with Matt Lamadou? I have not heard that one yet. Okay, because he has kind of a similar theory that it was actually Nixon who was kind of behind it all with Najib Halabi um, and Hunt being involved, but not as the hijacker. Mm-hmm. But he believes it was a government-sanctioned operation to sort of change the airline industry. And you kind of touch on that in your book also, that this is the hijacking that really ended the other ones. Well, one thing maybe I didn't make clear is, in looking at motives for E. Howard Hunt, that would have been a good one for him. Nothing bothered Hunt more than communism. He was a fervent anti-communist. all his life, he particularly hated Fidel Castro and saw him as like an arch villain. So you can imagine how upset Hunt would have been that there were all these Cuban hijack uh, hijackings to Cuba taking place during the during this period. I don't think it was government sanctioned, but I think Hunt said, "Look, um, the government is not stopping this problem, so I'm going to take matters into my own hand." And one of the benefits possibly of the of this heist will be that the airports will, will crack down on security. And they certainly did. They, it did. It still took about another year. That's why there were all those copycats in between the time of the Cooper heist and the time that they started uh, making magnetometers a routine thing of uh, passengers having to go through. Um, they also, not long after the Cooper Heist, uh, came up with a device that would keep the aft-stairs door, aft, aft doorway closed during flights. The Cooper vein. That's right. Do you think that if the FBI or the CIA discovered that Hunt did pull this off, that they would have protected him? Yes. I think it would have looked really bad, and I think... You have to remember that the person who was over the investigation to begin with was John Mitchell. He was the attorney general. 
And in March, John Mitchell leaves that role to become the campaign head for the Nixon administration, for the Nixon campaign. That was a big concern at that point in, in Nixon's mind was getting reelected. He cared more about that than anything else. J. Edgar Hoover, I mentioned, died in April, and he was replaced by L. Patrick Gray. And L. Patrick Gray worked for John Mitchell. He was his deputy. And L. Patrick Gray wanted to get, didn't want to just be the interterm FBI director. He wanted to have that as a permanent job. So he knew in order for that to happen, he had to some degree protect Richard Nixon. And I, I think that one thing that you have to consider is E. Howard Hunt had something no other D.B. Cooper suspect had, and that was what he thought was a get-out-of-jail-free card. Because when he jumped, E. Howard Hunt knew that he had performed this illegal operation for the Nixon campaign of flying to Los Angeles and burglarizing um, a doctor's office looking for a patient's file. And nobody else knew that at that point. So Hunt knew that if he got caught, the the attorney general, who was about to be taking over for the Nixon campaign, would not have wanted it to get out that somebody in the Nixon administration had been doing something as illegal as breaking into a doctor's office looking for dirt. And I think they would have been very hesitant to let him take the rap for that. I think also if Hunt had gotten caught, he could have passed that off as a drill of some sort and claimed that he was still in the CIA, and maybe he was thinking that. Yeah, it's really interesting to speculate on what he would have done if caught and if they would, they'd covered up for him. Mm-hmm. If he has dirt on Nixon, I mean, Nixon is out of office not that long after the Watergate scandal. So anything Hunt had on him kind of is invalid at that point, right? Well, it became invalidated by the Watergate hearings. That's when those things came out, that he had been doing these quote-unquote dirty tricks for Richard Nixon. So at that point, he would have lost that card. And at that time, Hunt was rotting in prison, um, so things were not looking good for him. But all the same, um, God knows what other secrets he could have revealed if the FBI had, had prosecuted him. I think he would have sang like a canary to to save his own hide at that point. And that would probably not have looked good for the CIA or the FBI. In any of Hunt's books and memoirs, I mean, he wrote like 50 books. Mm-hmm. Is there anything similar to the D.B. Cooper hijacking? Yeah, good question. I Most of his books are out of print. So as best I could, I tried to get summaries of his books and and could not find anything that was close. My opinion is that D.B. Cooper, whoever he was, was inspired by the hijacking, skyjacking that came out 11 days earlier by Paul Sinney. Do you know anything about that? I know a little bit about it. Mm -hmm. The um, hijacked a plane in Canada and flew it to Denver. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that was the first instance of somebody trying to make money with a skyjacking. Up until then, skyjackings were always somebody being flown to Cuba. And Paul Sinney was the guy who came up with the idea of bringing a parachute on board and, and skydiving out after he got the money. 
That happened 11 days before the Cooper heist. So I think it would be an unreal coincidence that Cooper was planning the exact same thing before then. But is 11 days enough to to plan this? Well, that's the thing. Um, For 11 days to be enough, it would have to be somebody who did have experience in these types of things. I, I think that it had to be somebody who already knew what he was doing and who had a history of performing covert operations. Yeah, he definitely had the skills to plan this operation. Mm-hmm. He had the skills to pull it off. And then, arguably, he had the skills to keep it under wraps. Right. Imagine if you're working directly under the guy, John Mitchell, who is over the investigation. You're going to have an an, an in, and he knew exactly what John Mitchell was doing as far as releasing the serial numbers. He knew who he was releasing them to probably and and could have sat on the money for a while if he needed to. What do you think about the tie, Nat? Do you think the tie was Cooper's? What do you think about the evidence on the tie? Yeah, that's a, another good question. Um, when you read the FBI files, they the reports were written two days after that tie was recovered. And for me, there are real questions about whether or not the tie belonged to Cooper and whether or not Cooper had owned the tie for a long time or maybe bought it at a thrift store in, in Oregon. The FBI, the FBI report says that it was found in or on the seat. And if it was found in the seat, where was it found? That's really frustrating. And Jeffrey Gray, in one of, one of his um, newspaper articles, says that it was found in or near the seat. And Tina Mucklow, when she was the first person to search the plane when they landed before the FBI got on there, makes no mention of seeing that tie and later could not identify it. But I actually think it probably was his tie. But one of the problems is in between the time the FBI recovered the tie and the time that Tom Case started examining it, that tie had a long history. And the FBI report shows that that tie was being flown around to different offices and agents were presumably taking it out. And I'm guessing showing it to Boeing employees. And it had a long history before it got to Tom Case. So my fear is that the evidence on the tie that he's seeing came about after the Cooper heist. Yeah, that's very possible. Uh, Like you said, there were many years before Mm -hmm. the tie was actually examined. Yeah, it's it's frustrating to me that the best evidence that the FBI could have given Tom Kay would have been the eight cigarette butts and the two hairs from Cooper that were recovered. And those were two things that, according to Tom Kay, were were lost. (laughs) Well, there's an FBI document that actually says to throw the cigarette butts away. Mm-hmm. That just seems like such a weird move. Even if when was it? When was it dated? Oh gosh, I don't have that in front of me right now. But um, Bill Rollins uh, sent it to me that the cigarette butts were supposed to be examined for evidence, and once they were done examining them, go ahead and throw them away. Mm-hmm. Is what the document said. Well, then that indicates they were thrown away pretty early into the investigation, um, which means there probably wasn't an attempt to cover something up, but it's, that is frustrating. That may be the case. I never saw that in any of the FBI files, and I was looking. It's hard for me to believe that that he found that and 
that Jeffrey Gray didn't come across that because he has definitely tried to track down when those things were lost. Yeah, I'll send it to you today. Okay. What do you think about the DNA evidence that the FBI supposedly has? I hope it's Cooper's, but um, my, you know, we don't know. It, it's um, it's it's spittle from somebody. So it could be Cooper. It could be somebody in the FBI. It could be somebody the FBI showed the tie to. It could be a J.C. Penney executive they showed it to. As for the other elements on the tie, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that when we find out who D.B. Cooper is, I'm betting it will not be somebody who spent time working in a cathode ray tube factory. I just don't think that's the case. Why is that? that (laughs) Because I think Cooper was not an engineer. I think he was somebody who had a CIA affiliation. Yeah, I mean, how many 40 to 50-year-old engineers end up committing such audacious crimes? That's a very good point. I believe the same thing. I don't think an engineer without a whole lot of experience could have pulled that off. And but um, when you read the FBI files, they they did look at Boeing engineers. That was one of the, the avenues they went down, and they came up empty. The other thing about it maybe being a Boeing engineer that doesn't make sense to me is a Boeing engineer would have known that you could open those um, open that staircase mid-flight. They would have had that much knowledge. I don't think they would have had knowledge that you can safely airdrop cargo from there or know how fast the plane had to go to airdrop the cargo. And the other thing is you would think a Boeing engineer would know how to lower the staircase without having to ask Tina Mucklow and would know that it was a 727 and not have to ask the ticket agent if he was about to board a 727. Yeah, that's a great point. Asking the ticket agent if it's a 727 is a very interesting detail. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Because some of the suspects... In the the Cooper heist, it's just kind of luck that they discover, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, and you can jump out the back stairs. Right. Well, why would he ask if it was a 727? Right. I think that's maybe the the most relevant clue in determining that Cooper had some inside knowledge. But as others have pointed out, he was really confident. He knew the stairs could go down. He knew the plane could take off with the stairs already down, and he didn't have a whole lot of hesitation he seemed to to know that much anyway yeah and knowing that the plane could take off with the stairs down is so interesting because Mm -hmm. why would you do that and only only someone who has done something like that would say that right yeah or or knew about the the maybe the air america campaign where they'd done that getting back to the stairs being down on takeoff do you think he intended to jump out of the plane immediately no, and and, and I, I think that is a logical conclusion you can draw, but I think the reason he wanted the staircase down right off the bat was that he wanted to make sure the flight crew was all in the cabin and couldn't see what he was doing. And if you get that one detail taken care of, you don't have to have the stewardess in the back showing you how to do it. There's an uncertainty as to how that's going to go down when you do that. When you look at the timeline, um, he was waiting like a at least 20, 25 minutes after the staircase was down before he jumped. So if he really wanted to jump near Seattle, why did he wait so long? Yeah, that's a great point. Also, I mean, if you jump near Seattle, the odds of being seen seem to go up exponentially. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree with that. 
you touched on something interesting in your book that doesn't really get talked about, and that is the potential that the main witnesses to Cooper, being the stewardesses, mm-hmm. were possibly threatened into staying silent. Right. And I have to say I completely drew that from Jeffrey Gray's book. He mentions when he interviewed Florence Schaffner that she proposed the theory that somebody got to Tina Mucklow. And if D.B. Cooper got away with it, he would have known who she was and it wouldn't have been that hard, I would, I would think. But Florence Schaffner tells this story to Jeffrey Gray that is driving me crazy. I would like to know when it took place. She claims, Florence Schaffner, that at some point a stalker began stalking her and would keep appearing and at one point boarded one of her flights. And so she finally confronted this guy and said, who are you? Leave me alone. And the stalker said, I was in prison with D.B. Cooper and he wants to talk to you. And D.B. Cooper was at Bay of Pigs and is in the CIA. And there was a period where E. Howard Hunt was in prison, and it seems to me, knowing him as I do now, that would have been exactly the type of thing he might have tried to get somebody to intimidate the witnesses. But Jeffrey Gray does not give us a date when that happened. So was it right after the hijacking? Was it years after? That's one, one of those details I would like to find out. Yeah, and something that adds some credibility, especially to your suspect, is those stewardesses would have seen him on TV right. in that that's hearing right. and known, oh my God, that's a dangerous guy. That's a powerful that's man. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, you know, imagine you're Tina Mucklow and you spend a couple hours with him, and the FBI is telling you it's just a, a common criminal, and then one day you turn on the TV and see him being interviewed, and you find out that he was in the CIA, he might still be in the CIA, and he's working for Richard Nixon, Um, you're going to see him as a really dangerous person, and you're probably going to come up with the conclusion, okay, this was a a CIA operation, so at this point, I don't want to identify him. Yeah, and, you know, they both kind of went into hiding and kind of refused to talk about this after it happened. Yeah, and also, uh, my understanding is uh, Bill Mitchell, who was kind of the third really good witness, also tried to keep a low profile and became a bit of a recluse. It's so impressive that he was able to pull this off, and there's really only four witnesses. Mm-hmm. And most of those witnesses never even really got a good look at him. I mean, Florence mm-hmm. Schaffner took the note, saw him, looked at him, talked to him for a minute. Right. But then Tina Mucklow took over. Right. Do you think there's a possibility that Tina was involved? No. No, I don't think so. Um, she was just a kid at that point. And I don't think, I don't think D.B. Cooper would have had to involve her. If you read over the FBI reports taken right after the hijacking, they also interviewed her again a, a week later. She just comes off as being sincere and credible. I don't, I don't think she was anything more than what she seemed to be. I have to also add, one of the things that's frustrating for me is I am not a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I think Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. But in order for this theory to be right, there had to be at least some conspiracy involved. Yeah, I don't. I think if, if it's Howard Hunt, I, he probably had some help keeping this quiet. Right. What do you think is the best evidence for Hunt, and what is the best evidence against 
for being Cooper? The best evidence for Hunt, there are a couple of things we already talked about. Um, we talked about the fact that he had a history of performing operations on long holiday weekends. Another one is his connection to Mexico City. I think if D.B. Cooper made one mistake, it was when he asked to be flown somewhere, he named Mexico City. And what did he do after that? He immediately went back and said, or anywhere in Mexico. If E. Howard Hunt was D.B. Cooper, he would have known that he was associated with Mexico City. He spent a lot of time there, and that was be something that maybe could connect somebody to him, the D.B. Cooper Heights. So I think that's one of the things that's a really interesting clue. Um, the other thing we haven't talked about too much is the physical resemblance between him and D.B. Cooper, what we know of. There are certain physical characteristics we can be pretty sure D.B. Cooper had, and these would be a wide large forehead, receding hairline, a sagging chin, the skin that is kind of flapping underneath. And those are all things that E. Howard Hunt had during this period. In the interview that Roy Rose gives on YouTube, he also mentions that there was something funny about Cooper's lower lip, that it would kind of pucker when he talked. That, too, is something that E. Howard Hunt seems to possess, if you look at videos of him talking. We know that E. Howard Hunt was in the CIA and would have had that knowledge probably of Air America. He had parachuting experience and he was approximately the right age. He was a little bit older. He was 53 at the time of the Cooper Heights. He just turned 53. The other thing is right after the Watergate, uh, Watergate break-in happened, E. Howard Hunt went to a bank with his son and withdrew something from the safe deposit box. We know that happened because uh, his biographer, Tad Salt, got his hands on the bank records and saw that that indeed had happened. His son claims that they removed somewhere between $100,000 and $200,000 in $100 bills, which they then took back to the Hunt house and hid. So there's that question of how, where did that money come from? Was it a, a Nixon campaign donation that he had squirreled away? Maybe that is plausible, or was it something that he had gotten from the Cooper Heist? But it was the first thing he did. The next thing he did was fly cross-country to Los Angeles. And when this happened, Hunt made international headlines because he completely dropped out of sight. And people knew that there was this guy involved with Watergate that had disappeared. He completely vanished. It's interesting that he was going to this attorney friend of his in Beverly Hills because that was also one of the uh, people that he approached about raising money for a scheme that he had come up with with two of his uh, Cuban-American friends. And that's a whole other story. But apparently, about a year after he retires from the CIA and months before the D.B. Cooper heist, he was trying to raise seed money for some business venture with these two other guys. And one of the guys he approached about this was this guy named Tony Jackson in Beverly Hills, who was also an attorney. All those things combined seem to be make him a, a pretty good candidate, and some of them are, are just unique. As for what works against him, 
Howard Hunt had blue eyes, not brown eyes, and he did not have an olive complexion, which a couple of the witnesses reported. And apart from that, uh, it's a little hard to believe that somebody who's working for the Nixon administration would have done something that crazy, but you do have to keep in mind, he was not a public figure at that point. He didn't become a public figure until a year later. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I mean, the resemblance he has to the first sketch, the Bing Crosby sketch, is mm-hmm. remarkable. Yeah. Uh, if you don't know what Howard Hunt, E. Howard Hunt looks like, Google it right now. And like you were saying, there is, because um, I've done it recently, mm-hmm. uh, on the first page you're going to see two or three pictures where he's looking dead on into the camera. Right. And it's very similar to that Bing yeah. Crosby sketch. Yeah, I'm glad you think that. Um you know, one thing that's weird is if you see photos of him from the Watergate hearings, for some reason he's wearing sunglasses in there. Uh, he seemed to really like wearing sunglasses, and I I would like to know why he would have put those on. That, that's one question, is if he really was D.B. Cooper, why would he have done anything to make himself look like D.B. Cooper at those hearings? And my only response to that is maybe he was trying to send a signal to Tina Mucklow and Florence Schaffner. There are pictures of him wearing sunglasses in that hearing. Mm-hmm. Which, I don't even know why they would allow that. Maybe they were prescription or something, he argued. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> what has the reaction been to your theory and to this book? Um, well, my friends think it's interesting, but so far it, it hasn't exactly actually caught fire. And I'm just hoping that this book will enter the Cooper vortex and and people who are better at investigating these things than I am can track down some of the questions that we have and see if there's anything there. I would love to see if we can get to the point where the DNA evidence that we have from the tie could be submitted to GED match and see if anything comes up. But I don't know enough about that to know if the the DNA evidence is, is good enough for that. But that would that would be a good place to start. Let me ask you, why haven't you participated in, in the forums or anything like that? I mean, obviously, you're, you've been reading them. Because, like I said before, I'm not that into the whole Cooper conspiracy, I guess. And also, because this theory had never been out there before, I was afraid if I gave voice to it that somebody else would get, get the credit for it. So I wanted to get this book out there before I started wading into the forums and, and getting a reaction. I wanted to do as much research as I could and make as good a case as I could before putting it out there because I knew putting it out there right away would, would just have people not take it seriously. I had to really make a good case for it before doing that. I, I definitely understand that and, and can appreciate that perspective. When I saw this book, I googled another author's uh or not googled i went to amazon to another author's books page um Mm -hmm. to type it in for my show and then towards the bottom it said other books you might like Mm -hmm. and i saw your book and i was like what the hell i haven't heard of this book yet so i i bought it immediately i don't think it had been out uh very long at all when i picked it up maybe a few days or something Mm -hmm. on the website but I was so excited to read it, and the the fact that it was a theory that I hadn't heard before, right, um, was very exciting. And when I got the book, I kind of ex- 
half expected it to be not well researched and to be kind of ridiculous. Right. Um, and when I picked the when I got the book at home, picked it up and started going through it, it's incredibly well researched and I really loved reading it. And it wasn't a theory I think when uh, a lot of people in the DB Cooper community hear E Howard Hunt, mm-hmm. just instantly eyes roll. Okay, right. whatever. Right. But looking into it, it actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it it answers some questions. The big question for me is how is it that the FBI, with all its resources, had 45 years to investigate this high-profile mystery that had approximately 10 witnesses, uh, maybe more, and a, a good, probably, sketch of him and knew a lot about the case. How could they not solve it after all that time? You And all the other... Cooper copycats they solved right away. Not too many people got away with it. I think Frederick Hahnemann lasted for about one month, and he had the record for the longest Cooper copycat to get away with it. But even then, they knew who he was. Yeah, he ended up going to uh, Guatemala. I can't remember where he... I think he landed in Colombia. (laughs) Colombia, okay. What What would you like the audience to know about your book? Other than the fact that they should definitely buy it. I would just like to say that I tried not to put anything in there that I couldn't corroborate. I tried to have multiple, either find it myself in the FBI files or have um, testimony from multiple witnesses. And one of the challenges I had with E. Howard Hunt is he's a terrible liar. And he did lie about dates sometimes. Um so I, it was hard to fact-check him, but I did the best I could, and when I couldn't be absolutely certain of something, I tried to make that clear. It's a great book. I, definitely, if you're interested in D.B. Cooper at all, I would highly recommend uh, you pick it up. If not, Thank just you. for the fact that it's the latest book out there. Yep. Um, a lot of the books on the subject are written pre-internet, so... Yeah, and one thing I would add in that is I have a feeling, I guess my book is the first one that's come out after the FBI released all these files. And so I'm one of the first people to comb through those and then report back on what I found. Yeah, it was definitely nice to have that in the book. Do you think this case will be solved? You know, before I started listening to your podcast, I I, I thought it would because I thought we would have enough DNA evidence that it that would come out. And then hearing that we lost those two hairs uh, makes me a little more pessimistic. I think D.B. Cooper has probably died by this point. I think he, and what that means is he didn't leave a deathbed confession. None of his relatives have come out and said, yeah, it was him. So I would say unless we recover those eight cigarette butts, there's not a great chance we'll ever know because maybe somebody doesn't want us to know. Yeah, in, in the case of Howard Hunt, that's definitely true. Mm-hmm. Did you reach out to uh, any of his kids? No, I thought about that. Um, his one son, St. John Hunt, is the one who has put out a couple books, and he's a bit of a public figure himself. He would be easy to approach, but again, I was afraid if I did that, the story would get out before I could 
release the book and make the good case for it. I have a feeling that this will get back to the Hunt family at some point, and maybe at that point we'll <laughs> we'll hear from them. Well, if someone does want to reach out to you about this, where can they find you? I'm I'm okay with you putting the Gmail address on your website for now. Okay, and that's natlafoke at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And then while I've got you, I have to ask you one more question. On the last page of your book about the author... Right. It says you don't believe in Bigfoot. That's right. Why I, Why is that, and why did you choose to put that in there? Well, because I was trying to make it clear that I'm not a, a nut job, and that I don't believe in conspiracies, and I know how incredibly crazy this theory is. I have to tell you, when, when you and I talked about a week ago, I was deeply, deeply disappointed when he told me this was not the craziest D.B. Cooper theory he'd run across, because I figured I'd at least win that award. <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, there's There are theories that I've investigated where the whole time I'm like, this isn't even plausible. Yep. I, I heard, I won't mention which, but the podcast you directed me to, was, I think, was a good example of that. Yes. <laughs> so I, I give you a lot of credit for, for staying in there and investigating every story, no matter how bizarre they sound. One of them has got to be right sooner or later. One of them's got to be right. All right, Nat. Well, anything else? Is there something That's we didn't a- cover? I I think that about sums it up. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. And again, I, I think your book is great. And I'd highly recommend my audience pick it up. I really appreciate that, Darren. All right. It was good to talk to you. And I appreciate you coming on. You're quite welcome. All right. Thanks. Go get his book, D.B. Cooper, Examined, Identified, and Exposed. It's on Amazon now and a paperback is under 10 bucks. I really enjoyed it and I know you will too. Are you upset we haven't covered your top suspect yet? Let us know. You can find us on Facebook. We are the Cooper Vortex on Twitter at DB Cooper Podcast or email us dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. Thank you to Nat LaFoke for coming on to tell us about his book, Howard Hunt and DB Cooper. Thank you to Russell Colbert for making the show a reality. Without him, this would just be something I wish I did. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.